0: A few metrics about China to put before you. Compared with 330 million Americans, China is today home to 1.4 billion people, including 12.8 million Uyghur Muslims, over a million of whom are being arbitrarily detained in Xinjiang province. China's GDP is $17.7 trillion, which compares to an annual US economy of $23 trillion, and a $16.6 trillion economy for the 27 member states comprising the European Union. In its military spending, China currently spends $193 billion a year, compared with $738 billion for the United States. The remarks you're about to hear opened one of the most fascinating sessions of our most recent Faith Angle Forum, where Dr. Peter Frankopan opened a -a two-and-a-half-hour fast-moving conversation with 18 transatlantic journalists. That video recording is available in its entirety in the show notes, and Peter is the professor of global history at Oxford University's Worcester College, where he runs the Oxford Center for Byzantine Research. Alongside the founder of a Brussels think tank focusing on Russia and China, Theresa Fallon, Peter spoke about trade, culture, and the easily misconstrued history of the Eastern and Western worlds, which have interacted in and around China for centuries. His 2015 book, The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, has been translated into 42 languages, and it's sold over 1.6 million copies. He's written four other books, including a 2012 title on the First Crusade, and a forward-looking book entitled The New Silk Roads, which won the 2019 Human Sciences Prize from the Caracal Foundation. Peter reminds us in the book that in the last 40 years, China's economic growth has lifted 800 million people out of poverty, over half its population. Today, the country is creating two new billionaires every month. And yet, while the Chinese Communist Party clearly knows what it wants, in many ways, it's a black box to outsiders. Is its Belt and Road Initiative a multi-decade economic growth plan for broader Asia or a possible trap for borrowing governments? Stories of China's systematic use of public cameras, as many as 700 million of them, worry Westerners. And its system of social credit scoring, other state security monitors, and worst of all, its holding captive in horrific conditions over a million Uyghurs, is truly ominous. And of course, China also boasts the second largest military in the world. That there is so much about China the average Westerner doesn't know feels... Not sure what the right word is. Maybe implicating? In any case, enjoy an outstanding China talk from one of the world's top minds, making these things accessible to mainstream journalists. And if you like what you hear, check out the longer form video in the show notes, including thoughtful questions from a dozen or more European and American journalists.
1: Peter? I guess from a sort of geopolitical point of view, China sort of appeared almost from nowhere. With the Obama-Asia-Pacific pivot, it was, you know, 2014, 2015, there was a sudden awareness or reorientation of US foreign policy, military policy, socioeconomic policy, that China was bigger and more substantial problem. And I think that was how the Obama administration looked at China, that needed to be understood as well as managed. But that Asia-Pacific pivot, I'm sure Teresa will say something about that, is something that we jumped onto late here with the EU as well. Putin had his own pivot to what the Asia-Pacific means from most of the countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, China looms large in all of those, uh, as it does in the Indian Ocean world too, partly because of the way that China will talk about that, I'm sure, with questions, China's role in the Indian Ocean and along, along the high seas. But that sudden rise of China's GDP, it's Gone up about 15 to 16 times in the last 20 years, which is extremely rapid. And the idea that China's become a political threat. And I guess the first takeaway question from that is: how come China, was China a threat all along? What changed that made us wake up in 2014, 2015 to think this was a significant issue? And to, to give some sort of just a, a sort of particularly cheap shot. But in 2015, uh Xi came on a state visit to the United Kingdom and had a pint of beer with David Cameron at his favorite Oxford pub. And we announced in the UK. This was the start of a golden age of cooperation with China, something repeated by Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. And we've more or less in the UK gone over the course of between 2015 and probably 2018 for China being the answer to, all of our prob- uh, answer to all of our problems to being the source of all of our problems. And that requires some very careful thought, not just from understanding how we make decisions, that requires a little bit of, of brain power to go into how is that understood in Beijing? Because despite the fact that I think it's quite well known, we, we've changed our leaders quite regularly in the United Kingdom recently, uh, 44 days of a Prime Minister and 38 days. I think we've had four chancellors this year. The same personnel have been in charge in Beijing for at least a decade. So she's been in power for about 11 years. All of the team around her has been a little reshuffle in the Politburo of the 20th Party Congress, but essentially it's exactly the same people saying exactly the same things in exactly the same way. And in fact, we could probably map that out to Moscow, too, where it's an even longer pedigree, more than 20 years of the same top team in power. And so the big question, like in any relationship, is did they change or did we? And if we changed, why did we change? If they changed, how and why did they change, too? So to pick out a couple of quotes from the U.S. National Defense Strategy, uh, the the U.S. badged in 2018 China as having the aim, as a quote, uh, the of the, United Nation, uh, the displacement of the United States I think, pardon, to achieve global preeminence. And, and that's a pretty punchy assessment to publish in a national defense strategy that's publicly accessible. Uh, John Sullivan, acting head of state in the same year, uh, identified China, Russia, and Iran as forces of global instability. And that, I think, that process about what we're trying to look at at China tends to be through the lens of how is it a threat? What does it do wrong? Where does it compromise the rights of its citizens? Uyghurs, you mentioned, Josh, and uh, in terms of surveillance states. But how do we we understand it or, and this gets said a lot by US officials in particular, Mike Pompeo in 2019, repeated in the um, US defense strategy produced by President Biden last month, is that, this is a quote from Pompeo, the United States and its allies needs to ensure that China retains only its proper place in the world. And that choice of language, I think, is quite interesting in a post-colonial world about what a proper place is and how that process is going to be managed. And again, we don't just need to think about what that means to us, it's how does that sound and uh, how's that interpreted in Beijing and in China. When I talk about China, and you're very experienced um, using China interchangeably with the Communist Party of China rather than the Chinese people. um, We've achieved, we we have a broadly similar view in the United Kingdom. I was involved in something called the Integrated Review that was published last year, where the assessment of the the UK Foreign Office Uh, Treasury and Ministry of Defence is that the primary challenges facing the United Kingdom outside non-state actors and uh, terrorism and cybercrime and so on were whole-of-state actors, in particular China and Russia, and to some extent Iran. Um, Integrated Review identified China as a systemic competitor and uh, that that China will be the most significant geopolitical factor of the 2020s, uh, partly because, and these again quotes, uh, the scale and the reach of its economy, the size of its population, its technological advancement, uh, the increasing ambition of China to project its power, for example, through the Belt and Road that I will not talk about hugely here, but we will talk, I'm sure, in the Q&A, and that these will have profound implications worldwide. Clearly, China's authoritarian model, its different values, whatever, in fact, values really mean if one drills into those, hugely significant. But the challenge is how to harness the good bits that we want to take, growth, trade, Climate cooperation, and how do we do how do we manage the bits that we don't want to deal with or find difficult? And how do we build, as the Integrated Review called it very euphemistically, a robust diplomatic framework, which means something and it means nothing. So it's obvious why China is a challenge and a source of concern. And again, there's no particular order to these, but clearly Taiwan is an important talking point and thought point. Another one is about the attitudes towards intellectual property. Another towards the assertiveness that Integrated Review mentions, and in particular, Wolf Warrior policy. Sort of Chinese diplomats, particularly foreign affairs spokesmen, tend not to uh, take things lying down and hyper aggressive uh, in their choice of language. The cyber capabilities that China has through state actors or, or state sanctioned, where the FBI open a case, a major case every 10 hours against China, saw cyber attacks. Uh, the passive causes, where China is kind of part of our problem, whether we like it or not. And I'm thinking here particularly about uh, jobs being offshored out of developed economies into not just China, but into South and East Asia too, which has been fantastic for the global poor. Uh, Josh mentioned 800 million out of poverty, and it's a, it's a very fluid line, exactly what poverty actually means. And um, it's a World Bank metric rather than mine. But those beneficiaries of hyperglobalization in the last 30 years have been the global poor. And that's come at the expense of some of the people we spoke about Yesterday, uh, the disenfranchised, or as Hillary Clinton called them, the deplorables, Democrat voters who've got nowhere to go. And the sort of pushback towards China across every single democratic and, in fact, also authoritarian systems, too. So the the single quickest way to lose an election today in the high income countries is to call for higher, closer cooperation with China, which strikes me as quite quite a curious culmination of Chinese economic and foreign policy to turn the whole world against you because of aggressive economic Policy. So how to manage China's rise, or as Bob Zelik put it in 2005, how is China going to become a responsible stakeholder? The way we see it in the West is that China needs to prove itself in how it should engage with all of us, and it needs to behave in a way that we approve of, appreciate, and benefit from. And so all these questions, I think, come down to what does that actually mean? What does a rising, growing, prosperous China mean? How much of a concern is it that China's and it's not China's fleet, it's the the People's Liberation Army, which belongs and is controlled by the Communist Party. The military is not a Chinese national military, it's it's a Communist Party military. What does it matter if China could put more naval vessels out to sea than the United States? Does it matter what size they are? Does it matter what range they have? Does it matter what kind of defensive or offensive capabilities it has? What's the position on hypersonics or of advanced technologies where we in the West are developing quite quickly some of these capabilities, is the fact that China is doing that acceptable or unacceptable? And if it's unacceptable, why is it OK that we do so? But also, how is China and its growing reach going to change our world around us? So before the pandemic, the number of Chinese visitors globally outbound on the spend they had was already changing our high streets, what our hotels look like, what's on the menus, how things decorated, property prices in from New Zealand through to San Francisco, all compressed by very large volumes of Chinese capital coming into to acquire. Here in France, a, a huge challenge around vineyards in Bordeaux in particular being bought up by, by Chinese buyers. And the question which will I'm not going to again talk here, but we'll do with in Q&A, is, you know, is this a form of, of colonisation, right? Neo-colonisation, China's threats, for example, with the acquisition of a 26% share of the port of Hamburg, this is neo-colonialism, colonisation. And as a modest Pedantic historian, I can tell you that's not what colonization looks like. Colonization is not people coming to invest in your infrastructure and buying things from you that you choose to sell and you can't find another buyer for, or you sell for a higher price to China. Colonization is when people are cast off in chains to other parts of the world, or your resources taken out of the ground to build cathedrals and art galleries elsewhere. So I think we need to use these words quite carefully because the one thing that we get wrong with China is we have no visibility, knowledge information, a way of analysing what China really is. There's a very good article by James Palmer called No One Knows Anything About China, uh, including the Communist Party of China, which is a slightly second half of the sentence. No one knows anything about China. We have almost complete ignorance. I know some of you have experience being based out in China. It's very difficult to run journalistic operations out there, freedom of speech, surveillance. But even in terms of, of eyes and ears on the ground, China per capita has half the number of foreigners living in it as North Korea does. North Korea has per capita twice as many foreigners living in Pyongyang than China does across the whole of China. And it means that our capacity to misunderstand, misevaluate, and to see the pictures that we want to see is extremely high. So in the United Kingdom today, as I sit here, we've got about 300 undergraduates in total studying Chinese. In France in the 1980s, there were two PhDs in Chinese history, eight in total in the 1990s. Uh, only two of which got permanent jobs. That's a black hole of such profound dereliction of duty if you're worried about what China might mean in the future and how one might try to understand it. So I'm not going to ask any of you, but I do that, I do ask my students, you know, can you name a single Chinese actor or Chinese film star? Have you ever seen a Chinese film that you can remember or think of? And we are absolutely in the blind. So when you say, for example, when you evaluate that in things like the number one ranked airline in China for Chinese consumers for the decade before the pandemic started was Aeroflot, which maybe you've had the pleasure of flying an Aeroflot. It's not as bad as it was in the 1980s, I can promise you that. But this is not just because the Russians or the Chinese like the Russians. It's about a whole different set set of configurations about how other people see the world and how other people see us as well. And some of these things are completely seismic in their scale. So, under some projections, here to talk about faith, about five to six years ago, lots of scholars, a lot of work was going around uh, Christian communities in China and the, the, their size, around about 45 million Christians in China, and the estimates that were by 2030, you, that China might have more regular churchgoers than the United States. Right? So these kinds of things, which are hugely important and significant in terms of what does that mean, what does faith mean to in China, can you be a Christian and a Marxist-Leninist, and I can point you to South America to show you that it's perfectly capable to do those both. But I think these kinds of ideas around what are we actually looking at, we need to be extremely careful in how we frame our analysis, and very modest in trying to assess our goals and trying to work out what it is that we look at. The eyes and ears are highly controlled, and our capacity to gather information is very low. Intelligence networks were dismantled, compromised, etc. Uh, ability to find out what's being said in the Politburo or at highest levels or almost zero and involves enormous amounts of very careful judgment, which is the worst possible kind of thing you want. You want as much information as possible rather than rely on being able to see things and do it with nuance. So those kinds of things around how do we get it wrong is it's quite, I suppose, quite obvious that we're going to get China wrong if we don't invest in looking at where it's come from, where it's going. And, And if I was in a More punchy mood, or had more coffee. I'd say the same thing about Iran. I say the same thing about India. I say the same thing about Pakistan. I say the same thing about almost every single country in Asia, and including Sub-Saharan Africa, and quite frankly, North Africa. Our petri dish of the self-aberration of what Europe means is a real prison that stops us, I think, from engaging with other other parts of the world. To the point that, and and I was in Washington recently with some high-ranking State Department officials. And I said, you know, I, I, understand, I don't need any explanation about what the benefits are of democracies and all the things we get wrong, we flog ourselves in the Western world. But there are lots of things we get right. You know, Carl said yesterday, democracies do lots of things really well. There are lots of things we could do better. We don't bring everyone along for the ride. There are disenfranchised populations, but there are, you know, there are some obvious wins. But I spoke in the State Department and I asked, you know, just what are the three most important or the best foreign policy outcomes the United States has achieved since 1990? You know where are the wins, And maybe if you can answer me that one in our Q&A, <laughs> and that, that would be great. I mean, if I was a US state, who are, who are the cleverest people I've ever met? you know They are spectacularly brilliant. You know, they speak languages. They really invest their time. They take soundings from outside. But the point, I guess, with that question is not to be a smart ass and say, tell me what you did right in Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, you can answer in the positive too. But if the bottom line is over these last 30 years and Cold War we could look at too if you want. Has our ability to identify threats been consistently right or has it been consistently wrong? If we had China wrong in 2015 and it was a threat, are we wrong in what China is today? You know, how were we in a position where we could think like our German cousins did, that German gas would always flow no matter what? How do you wake up one morning and say, we got that wrong? Because the next question is then what else are you getting wrong? What comes next? Where are the other things you're looking at too? And I, and I guess I'll just run through a little bit of the history. Am I okay, time-wise? Great. We've we got we've got like a, a long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They thought it was such a hostile question. I had to climb back down and I, and I spent like a psychiatrist the next ten minutes saying, "I'm not trying to. Hear, I'm not here for you to tell you what I think. It's just how would you, if you were sitting with your counterparts, what is it that you'd say we've done really well? Because you know, global prosperity is important, and the U.S. engine has been important in that. You know, you could say that." The U.S. taxpayer and consumers help drive healthcare benefits in the developing world, and maternal healthcare, child, child mortality, all the things that have been great, clean water, um, technologies have allowed us all to communicate better, but those are all private sector things and those are sort of lock-on effects rather than where we got things really right. But, you know, to, to, just to sort of, as a historian, I guess that's why, why I'm here, you know, how we've engaged the West, and I'm broadly speaking about Europe and the United States, Western allies like Canada, Australia and so on. Just to run through some of the ways in which we've got China uh, possibly wrong and maybe would explain why we're at this, some people like Henry Kissinger call a new Cold War. So at the end of the First World War in the Versailles settlements, even though 300,000 Chinese had been involved fighting on and supplying, actually rather fighting on the Western Front, here in Europe. The Chinese were excluded from many post-war settlements. Uh, we treated the Chinese as though they'd arrived at the party selectively late and didn't have any right to decide what their fate should be around European assets in places like Shandong and the peninsula. In the end of the 1940s, the United States, for uh, incredible reason, it's quite something when you invest your money to rebuild the enemy you just conquered. But the Marshall Plan built Europe back up into what it became. That was all based on the United States taking a view around what its view would be about Europe. But there was no Marshall Plan for China, which had been ravaged since 1933, a very heavy war with Japan, and then Civil War II. So China was left on the outside of that too. The warming up after Mao, the warming up of relations with the United States, was purely because China acted as a convenient counterbalance to the Soviet Union in the early 1970s. And at that point, it was about finding alliances against Moscow, China was brought on side by the Nixon administration with Kissinger to try to, to find a way of stabilizing and building a world that suited how Washington perceived its threats to be at the time. Uh, and to give just some, some I think, important context. I've been reading recently, in fact, a cutter's book about that covers the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre of uh, 1989. Uh, the day after the Tiananmen Square massacre, President Bush addressed the US population people and said that the Tiananmen massacre was an unfortunate incident. Uh, that Deng was a forward-looking leader and that the United States shouldn't judge the whole of the PLA by what happened in Beijing. Less than a week after Tiananmen Square, Henry Kissinger sent through back channels to Beijing to uh, tell the Politburo that he was an old and true friend of the Communist Party of China. So even in the wake of Tiananmen Square, with tanks on the streets, uh, 100,000 people minimum in in Tiananmen Square itself, uh, the way in which China and our American attempts In this particular case, Brent Skokov, too, following through with similar kinds of reports about what it was that China represented, what kind of opportunities, was profound misjudgment and extremely, I think, to to use George Bush's words, extremely unfortunate in retrospect that the opportunity to talk about what happened uh, were completely lost. That process over the last 30 years, you know, you can run through German policy under Helmut Kohl, Schroeder lifting arms bans, Merkel pinning a great significant part of the German economy on access to Chinese markets without the reciprocal benefits that they might have asked for, Clinton bringing China into the WTO and then being convinced that this would be, as Clinton put it at the time, that he was convinced that he would that we would see democracy in his lifetime in China. And the, one of the WTO negotiators, as they put it, they said, this is a win-win for the United States. They give, we take, what's well, not to like. And I think that idea about what it was that China would do and what it would turn into, there are some salutary lessons in that kind of Failure to analyse what was going on because at not a single moment since, in fact, opening up of China ninety two, and not a single moment since then has the Chinese Communist Party ever considered any form of meaningful opening up, any form of meaningful press freedoms, any meaningful attempts to have a symmetric relationship economically or politically uh, with any Western state or, in fact, with any of its neighbours, and nor any attempt to try to not game our system, which is China's big competitive advantage; it can subsidise. Um, all of its exports and then undercut manufacturers that then uh, take big companies out of the uh, picture. That, that model has been hugely successful for China, no question about it, whichever way you look at it. Poverty, 80,000 kilometers of high speed rail links that allow obviously people to move around quicker, cheaper, that galvanizes trade. And the wealth creation in China has been huge. And like we've done um, with the United States, I, mean, I beg your pardon, with Russia, Western countries have been extremely eager to find comfortable homes for the billions that have been pushed out of that, out of the system or hidden out of the system. So in the state of Delaware alone, uh, there are 300 billionaires of Chinese origin. Delaware is a great state if you want to, sorry, South Dakota. South Dakota is a great place to park cash if you don't want anybody to track where you put your money. And as we learned with Russia, we should learn with Russia, when you allow cash to leach out of the system, you prevent the emergence of middle class you allow for massive elite structures that are difficult in the long run, you build up highly complicated political structures and you bring business that has significant implications for your own populations too. So th- those processes I think of how China has reached where it is are, are really important to understand. So if one takes a long view, let's say the last century, uh, around about 1900, it was very similar discussions took place in India at the time, which was the the primary question for political philosophers was how is it possible that that the subcontinent of India and China, which had been the leading global economies and political systems for 1,000, maybe 2,000 years, maybe even 3,000 years, how had they been overtaken by a crummy little island in the North Atlantic? You know, and Britain's ability to build an empire is a source of extraordinary achievement and asks lots of kinds of questions, one of which is around what representative democracy was in the first place, we had a little bit about that. I definitely would like to come back and talk about what that meant. But the question was, was how is it possible that Europe had colonized everywhere and these great civilizations, China and India in particular, uh, had not only failed to do so, but had been colonized in the process and the Opium Wars, the ways in which the, you know, two envoys were humiliated in uh, the 1850s that eventually ended in in a British raid that burnt the Forbidden Palace in Beijing nicked, stole all of the, the treasures, which now some of us in the Ashmolean in, in Oxford. How is it possible that China had had lost its place in the world and had been relegated to the role of a vassal? And the answers to those questions, how to fix that, were people like Sun Yat-sen and then Mao. It was about changing China from a agrarian, rural, so-called backward population into an industrial powerhouse. Implicit in all of that, ru- running through the last hundred years, was China never wanted to be humiliated again. So in China today, it's called the century of humiliation, so roughly from 1800 to 1900 in the Boxer Rebellion. And in fact, there's now, since, since the beginning of the century, the last 20 years, there's a national day of humiliation, which is funny. We celebrate Trafalgar Day in England. We celebrate, you know, most places celebrate good things, you know, Declaration of Independence. China has a national humiliation day to enforce into its people and its population that the West have framed us, the reason why we are catching up and have to look after ourselves is because of the way in which we've been misunderstood, poorly treated by colonial imperialist powers. And that language translates very nicely into Marxist-Leninist thinking about resource extrapolation and extraction. So over the last hundred years, one of the stories that goes right the way through China's engagement in its perception of itself, is that the United States in particular, but the West, are trying to change China. They're trying to corrupt them. They're trying to trap China by peaceful means into changing its systems. And from Deng Xiaoping to Yipang to to Jintao to Jiang Zemin to Xi, who repeats it all the time, China, as well as not opening up its markets properly, uh, will never be a multi-party state. It says this again and again and again. Interestingly, in the last 18 months, China started to play on the fact that it is trying to present itself as the world's biggest democracy. It's a change of of pace in terms of parking tanks on our lawns. Uh, China, its constitution, uh, is a democracy under the dictatorship of the Communist Party. And talking to Chinese intellectuals, political scientists and government machine now, uh, what the Communist Party is very keen to try and do is to say, what is democracy? And if democracy is about competence and it's about outcomes, surely the best democracy is the one that delivers the biggest and greatest outcomes for the largest number of people. And uh, what the Chinese are now saying is, well, if you can produce people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos who have their own space programs, that looks like it's imperious, capitalist, elite, feudal structures. Uh, Look at China, where 800 million will be taken out of poverty and 70,000 kilometers of railroads, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we are late to that idea about how do we handle the disingenuity of that argument, handle the questions about where that's right. At what point are we failing the bottom sections of our society, minorities and so on and so forth? So, you know, I did an event just before lockdown with Mike Mullen, who'd been Chair of the Joint Chiefs and a very, very smart Chinese entrepreneur slash up and coming, you know, man to watch. And the minute, the first time anybody mentioned the Uyghurs, he was straight onto US prison numbers, the number of the black population in the United States, transmission of infectious diseases, illiteracy levels, re-offending rates, and then to say, well, look, this compares with what we do with the Uyghurs, which is we educate and we provide jobs and employment and we get them to sing songs celebrating the Communist Party of China. But I think that we need to be listening quite carefully to the Chinese interpretation of what it is they think we're trying to do, trying to change them, trying to pollute with the a bit like we hear from Putin, the decadence of the West, that the Chinese will never be pretty bourgeois and if you spent any time in China, Chinese are fantastic at being pretty bourgeois. They're the most pretty bourgeois of all in lots of ways in how they want to do things, which is which is great because you know China is a fantastically vibrant and diverse society. But that idea of what the West represents as a threat also has real political convenience in China. So after Tiananmen Square, the notorious was called the Central Document Number no. Seven, produced in the aftermath of the Tiananmen Square. And again, I'll, I'll just quote it before I wrap up. Uh, says that the, quote, entire imperialist world tries to make us abandon the socialist role and to turn us into a vassal of international monopoly capitalism. And that hasn't changed in the last 30 years. That's how she talks. That's how she thinks. Partly because Marxism-Leninism is a form of religion in its own right. It's a system of beliefs. It requires biblical texts that one refers to, rather the veneration of uh, Marx, Engels, Lenin and the sainthood. But the primary role that this has is, is partly to allow the Communist Party to have a mantra that explains its own control over the state. And we in the West insert ourselves into Chinese thinking much, much greater ways than actually is real. China, the Chinese Politburo, Chinese domestic politics are not uninterested in what we're doing and are not unthreatened. But the main driver in Chinese politics is Chinese politics, Chinese markets, and the kinds of questions that they have. It's not about China and its relationship with the world. It's not about a new Cold War. Uh, it's about how does China reform itself? How does it control power? And in, in that sense, as a kind of sign off, what I think is interesting about Xi, of whom there's not an English language, biography, by the way, which, you know, a bit like I said to my students when they applied to it a few years ago, you know, one of the sort of, we like to ask questions they haven't been prepped on. It's a very hostile, very difficult thing to get into these universities. So we, we try to make it not, you know, we don't ask how many wives does Henry VIII have or, you know, is the United States a great power and why? But I said to I did one year, I asked the students, have you read Donald Trump's autobiography, you know, Art of the Deal? And if not, why not? Because none of them would have done Why would you, if you're an 18 year old, have read it? But, you know, it's a kind of perfectly fair question to ask. Uh, by and large, all the kids who are from privileged, rich backgrounds all say I'd never be told to read it. And kids from less privileged backgrounds would kick off and ask why it was a valid question, which is exactly what you want. But the fact is, if she is as important as a systemic existential threat, the fact that it's so hard to find information about him, that there's no market for reading books about him, I know that there are in other languages a few biographies. Finding information about him tells us, I think, a lot about how we grasp in the dark to try to find challenges. But the most interesting thing I think about she is that when he took power, or came to power in 2012. This was a golden age, I think, in China. The middle classes were rising. There were Gucci stores opening up in second, third, and fourth tier cities. Uh, there was huge ambition about what China meant in the world, huge optimism. They just come the back of the Beijing Olympics. Social media was booming, outbound Chinese travel, really engagement with the rest of the world. Uh, China had a very high stock generally with its... Neighbors, which it still does, by the way. I mean, the negativity about China is a Western thing. In, China, in, in Africa in particular, almost every single of the 54 countries, China's reputation and uh, stock is high and remains high. But at that time where there were opportunities, she uh, only saw risks and threat. And uh, I suppose one question which would be good for the Q&A is, was he right? Was he right to see threats? Is China and the model compromised, under stress, facing difficulties, is there a challenge coming towards China that requires the kinds of things that she has done—crackdowns on fan clubs, high, high net worth, moving money out of the country? Uh, you know, why is it that she and the Communist Party have closed ranks in the way they have? Is it because of what we're doing, which is how almost everybody thinks, or is it about what's going on in the dynamics inside? China itself. So my final sort of uh, side-off, I guess, would be we should think quite carefully about what China really is rather than what we want to see. Uh, we should think a little bit about what it is that interests Chinese intellectuals and scholars. A lot of attention paid to the fall of the Soviet Union, and that, that I think is quite revealing in its own self. But also, you know, the stuff I know that you work on, many of you, and write about and think about around what does China's role within this Ukraine crisis and within the kind of global new orders look like, whether it's in terms of BRICS, whether it's in terms of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, whether it's China, as Bob Zelik said, responsible stakeholder, what that means, China's role within the United Nations, but also rather than trying to work out what we think about China, also trying to think about how China, Communist Party, Beijing, intellectuals think about us. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.
0: Faith Angle's new work in Europe exists to connect top European journalists with their American counterparts and with leading scholars and clerics who see religion at work all around us. Thanks for listening.